To conclude the program, we go back to Dr. Reeves, who presented a younger patient with myelofibrosis being considered for allo transplant. This gentleman is a 53-year-old man, a hardworking farmer, and he came to me about three, four years ago with a leukocytosis and was feeling, you know, just starting to feel kind of lousy. And we noticed that he had splenomegaly and other characteristics that made me think he probably had myeloproliferative disease. So we did a bone marrow, and he was found to have primary myelofibrosis, JAK2 positive. And at that point, we started thinking about what to do therapeutically for him. Ruben, can you talk a little bit about how you think through the initial management of a patient like this? Sure. So this case was a great example. You know, when I visit with these folks, I try to start with really getting a sense of their disease, both in terms of the risk, you know, with the various risk scores. So whether right now being the DIPSS or DIPSS plus, and whether we have any molecular information as well. But then I also look at their symptom burden and their spleen size. You know, is the spleen enlarged? Is it causing symptoms? Is it causing a problem? As well as really kind of their symptom burden. Is there a lot of fatigue, night sweats, fevers, weight loss? All of those are key factors. With a young guy such as this, you know, I always have in the back of my mind the issue of transplant is really kind of a first decision point. You know, is that something that's going to be in the distant future? Is that something that's not going to be considered? Or is that something that should be considered sooner rather than later? I then think about my medical therapy based a little bit upon those first sets of decisions. So reflecting back on what you heard, Ruben, about how this man presented, what would you have been thinking? Well, I think this was clearly a gentleman who was being impacted by his disease. He was having symptoms. He had splenomegaly. He clearly had active features of his disease. That being said, I think appropriately so, the issue of transplant had been decided upon to be looked at as a future option as opposed to something to do right at the moment. Transplant remains with fairly significant morbidity and mortality in this disease, but there is a time and a place for considering it. I think if we've learned anything over time, we can sometimes delay too much. But I think this patient was really a prime candidate for ruxolitinib in that he fundamentally had symptoms, some risk, and splenomegaly with the disease, and really has had an excellent response. So, Jim, can you talk about basically what happened at this point, what you did? Well, we both started him on ruxolitinib and had him seen at a tertiary care center where the doctors there agreed that he was a future transplant candidate. And so over the intervening years, we've gradually adjusted the ruxolitinib basically to higher doses because he's gradually gotten more symptomatic. Platelet counts are falling now to around 100, and he actually recently went back to the tertiary center where they want to move forward towards transplant for him. So, Ruben, can you talk about, first of all, what you saw when you reviewed the case in terms of the initial course? First of all, I should ask you, Jim, when you first treated him, what happened, particularly in terms of his signs and symptoms? Well, he initially got considerably better in terms of his energy level and his performance status. His spleen shrank. He felt better. And he's a very hardworking farmer here. And so he found that he was able to do more of his usual daily tasks, which were quite strenuous when he went on it. But here recently, he seems to be physically fading a little bit, I'd say. How long did it take before you started to see improvement, Jim? 
It was very rapid. I think within two or three weeks, he was considerably better in terms of how he felt. And we started to see his spleen go down as well. What was his initial dosing of the ruxolitinib, Jim? And what happened with his counts? I believe that I started him at 15 milligrams twice a day. I have gradually evolved towards starting people at lower doses and working up rather than the other way. But that's what seemed to work for him initially. So, Ruben, can you talk a little bit about your encounter with this patient today, how he appeared to you, and what your thoughts were about maybe where things should be moving in the future? Well, I've certainly found a very vigorous and robust, you know, young man. I mean, where I think he's clearly done well with the therapy and a lot of the goals being met in terms of splenomegaly and symptoms. You know, all of that being said, he's a very young man, so certainly... There's great concern for his long-term future, and there continues to be work in the arena of transplant trying to figure out what is really the optimal timing for someone as young as this in terms of transplant. You know, I can say that in retrospect, there are times that we clearly have waited too long sometimes to transplant individuals. Some have speculated that the optimal time for transplant in a transplant candidate might be when they're having their optimal response to a JAK inhibitor like ruxolitinib as opposed to waiting for it to play out its full course and see any amount of decline in the patient. Now, I do see one of the drivers for the consideration of the transplant at the moment is a little bit in terms of therapy-associated decline in the counts. There was an abstract that asked this year looking a little bit at this aspect, and it's not quite clear that cytopenias that are drug-emergent really have the same negative prognostic value as those kind of native to the disease. So the patient there has a plate count of 100,000, in part because of therapy, is probably a little bit more favorable group than the patient that has a plate count of 100,000 while not being on therapy. What about the possibility of procritinib in this situation, Ruben? So I think procritinib is an excellent drug. Certainly the trial at the moment that persists two studies for patients with a plate count of under 100,000. I think in his particular circumstance, he was just a little bit above that threshold, so didn't technically qualify for the study, but I do think it certainly would have been a strong option. You know, I think the hopes for procritinib is the ability to use more aggressive dosing or full dosing even in those individuals with significant thrombocytopenia and improvement of splenomegaly and symptoms. You know, I view that it can certainly be an extension of the importance of medical therapy. It would not necessarily supersede the conversation around transplant, however. I still view that our medicines, which clearly have been impactful, still are in a little different group in terms of expectations than transplantation. What is his current status, Jim, in terms of his spleen size, symptomatology? His spleen is about five to six centimeters below the left costal margin. In terms of his overall symptoms, the main symptom that we've seen observing him over time is that you might say his get up and go is just not quite there as much as it was a couple of years ago. He's, as I said, a hardworking guy. And he told us today that he's noticing he's slowing down in the afternoon some compared to how he was a couple of years ago. What do we know right now about other JAK inhibitors, including picritinib, but also other agents in development in patients who are stable or actually progressing on ruxolitinib? So we know that picritinib has been helpful. It was in a phase three study 
that I was involved with organizing and leading a procrutinib versus best alternative therapy. And in particular, it allowed patients with myelofibrosis with baseline thrombocytopenia to be able to be treated at full dose. We reported at ASCO improvements in splenomegaly and symptoms, but also the ability to improve anemia or thrombocytopenia in individuals with significant cytopenias. That was very beneficial. That agent has been publicly declared is trying to seek an approval in patients with myelofibrosis with significant baseline thrombocytopenia. The other JAK2 inhibitors that are still in the pipeline, the closest supercritinib is mamalitinib. This JAK1 and JAK2 inhibitor may have an impact on anemia and is currently in phase three studies comparing mamalitinib to ruxolitinib as frontline. And then finally, there is a drug in phase two testing, NS018, that is a somewhat selective JAK2 inhibitor a little bit earlier in testing. And again, what evidence do we have that patients progressing on ruxolitinib would respond to one of these other agents? You know, other than a count issue. At the moment, there are ongoing studies with each of these agents using them specifically as second-line therapies. But the data that has been presented thus far have been in people who were JAK inhibitor naive. So I think there is the hope that these will be active agents and beneficial in the second-line setting, but their testing still has been primarily in the frontline setting in terms of what has been reported. What other therapeutic agents and strategies, Ruben, are being investigated, particularly antifibrotic types of approaches, and anything that looks very exciting enough that a patient like this at some point might want to think about it, particularly if transplant weren't an option? Sure. So several exciting things in the pipeline. There's an antifibrosing agent, PRM-151. There was a phase 1-2 study I was involved in that was the agent alone or in combination with ruxolitinib. Even the agent on its own, we saw improvements in splenomegaly and symptoms, but we also saw improvement in anemia, thrombocytopenia, and even in fibrosis. Thoughts being that the improvements in fibrosis with this antifibrosing agent may have an impact in improving hematopoiesis. The agent works on monocytes and is involved with trying to inhibit some of that fibrosing process. And it's being looked at in other fibrosing illnesses such as pulmonary fibrosis. Other pathways being experimented with that are promising include inhibition of telomerase. The telomerase inhibitor imatelstat has been identified as having activity in myelofibrosis and the potential of improving cytopenias and splenomegaly. That infusional agent has some issues with hepatotoxicity and cytopenias, issues that I think have been worked out in terms of optimizing dose, but there are ongoing phase two studies with that agent. There are a variety of other pathway inhibitors which are being investigated, histone deacetylase inhibition, PI3 kinase, hedgehog, amongst others, but they're all still fairly early in development. In your brief meeting with him this morning, Ruben, any impressions about him as a person and as a patient? Well, he seems like a wonderful young man. I think that he's really fought his disease with you know, quite a bit of courage and fortitude. I suspect that even with those numbers, I suspect he probably would do well with transplant. He seems a very serious and dedicated guy. And again, as I've said, we clearly have seen in others that we sometimes have waited too long. But certainly is not an unreasonable consideration. 
I mean, I think Jim's key impression that he's a gentleman who's done well, but now that doing well is really losing some of its luster, you know, that more difficult to quantify status is an important factor.